If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 7. My plan this evening is to take this in, in chunks, uh, large chunks. It's, uh, it's 25 verses total, and we'll go a little bit at a time. Let's read now to verse 9. Hear now this, the word of the living God. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Harad, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them, by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise... Everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands. And he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent. And retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. This is the word of the living God, and we say, Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Most Heavenly Father, We gather in faith that you will speak to us even now. I pray for wisdom for myself. There is nothing I can boast in, and I pray for your help this evening, that I may represent this text accurately, that I may proclaim it rightly, and that Christ may be magnified even here in Judges chapter 7. I pray this for your glory, but I pray it also for the people gathered here. And may any, even this evening, who do not know you be saved in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in the book of Judges. We're here in in chapter 7. Last time we were in, in 6 and we got an introduction to Gideon. Gideon is is a scaredy cat, really, of sorts. And, and he, he needed these reassurances that God was going to pull through. And yet, despite his weak faith, we talked about that last time, God does 
bless Gideon and, and bless the people of Israel. And Gideon, in great faith, stands up to his father's household and, and, the, and the Baal worship is destroyed. And Gideon has great faith. And here, we're going to turn and Gideon is now going to face a different enemy. It started with the house of God. And now, Israel is going to turn and face the nations. This is their other enemy, Gideon's other enemy, if you will. And so we begin here just after the sign of the fleece, and we come to this text, and Gideon has been assured that God is going to bless him, that God is going to grant victory to his hand. But there's a few things here in these first nine or so verses that we need to, need to, 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 to sit with, to dwell upon before moving on. Notice verse 2. This is the key, the whole passage. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me. After Gideon tore down the Baal worship, many other tribes came and came to Gideon's side, and there was a great army assembled. Not all of Israel, but much of Israel assembled to support Gideon in his fight against the Midianites. You remember the Midianites had... had taken over much of Israel, and they were like locusts in Israel. And that language is reminiscent of that language we read about in Exodus. And it's, it's, it's as if Israel had gone backwards, back to Israel, and they themselves had been cursed by God for locusts or a judgment from God. And in chapter 6, we read that the Midianites are like locusts, and they're tearing down all the plants, and Gideon himself had to thresh wheat in a wine press because the Midianites were so prone to come and and steal their crops. Now a great army has gathered, and they're going to go face the Midianites. This is reminiscent of Moses being gathered up to face the Egyptians. But an interesting thing here happens. The people who are with you are too many for me. Your army is too big. No one ever says that. God says it, verse 2. The army, the people who are with you are too many to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me. There's going to be a temptation if Israel wins this battle with so many people that they can say that we ourselves did this and God is concerned about this. And therefore, he winnows down the army. And he does it in very interesting ways. Firstly, he says, verse 3, whoever is fearful and afraid, whoever doesn't want to go to, work, to war, let them go home. And so the first wave leave. And there are the people who are fearful. And then verse 4, there's still too many people. And God says, bring them down to the water. And this is that interesting test I think many of you have read about before. And people respond to this test in different ways. They're going to, Gideon is going to watch how people drink water. Everyone who laps with the tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart in a group. And then set apart the group that gets on his knees to drink. Now, 
some people, some commentators, perhaps you've heard this, have made much about these details. And they will separate these two groups and they'll, they'll say that, well, the people who, whom, the 300, those are the faithful ones. Those are the, those are the ones who really loved God who really had faith that God was going to give victory into their hands. And they say this, I, I think they stretch the text. They, they say that the people who got down and lap the water, like just stick your head down and lap the water like a dog, those people, they have their eyes up towards the hills. And so because they're drinking like this and keeping their eyes open, they're watching and they're watching <laughs> And then there's the other group, I think I might call them the normal group. They, they, they lean down and they, they take the water in their hands, they get down on their knees and they drink it more like this, like you would expect, I think, a normal person to do. And so God ends up choosing the smaller of the two groups, the 300. And the 300 are the people who I think, strangely, get down and lap the water. This is not, I, I, I think this is, I, I don't think we should read into this at all. I think this is an arbitrary test. And the point is, is to get it down to 300. Get it down to a, a small army so that God may get the glory. I think people who say more than this are, are not reading this well. In verse 10, If you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, the outpost of the armed who were in the camp. And so God again, this is the, perhaps the fourth time or so that God is going to acquiesce to Gideon's weak faith. Even though Gideon has done all of these tests, Now God is going to say, if you're still afraid, I want you to go down. Go down to the front lines, and I want you to go with your servant and listen. So now we're going to listen in, and we're going to hear something. Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. There's that word again. And their camels were without number, as the sand by the seashore in the multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I've had a dream. And this is, Gideon is within earshot of this. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. And to, his, and to his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. So now Gideon is strengthened because he's heard what this people believe. And if God gave them a dream and God answered all of Gideon's other fleece requests, and and Gideon is really strengthened. And notice here that he worships. He's giving thanks to God already before the battle began. It's worth noting as well that this camp is extremely large, this army of the Midianites. 
and you'll notice that they were without number, as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And this, again, is, is like the promise that, that Abraham received. He said, your descendants shall be like the sand on the shore, like the stars in the sky. Israel shall be blessed. They shall be numerous. And it's not them that's blessed. It's the Midianites who are blessed. So again, there's this idea that Israel has gone backwards, that they're being judged by God. And indeed they are. For they have sinned again and again and again. And this is why the Midianites have come upon them. Verse 16. Gideon now divides the 300 into three companies and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. These aren't weapons. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpet on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. So the Israelites are not using weapons. They're going out with trumpets and with pitchers and torches inside those. And this does look like the army is going to be larger than what it really is because not every soldier would hold a light or a trumpet. And so there's some trickery involved here for sure. Verse 21, every man stood in his place all around the camp and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. And when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled. Verse 23, the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim saying, come down with me against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places and they pursued the Midianites. And then lastly, they captured the two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. So when they make this big noise, and they, the army sees these, these many lights, and they, they, they kill themselves. They all turn against each other and start stabbing like wild men, and they kill their own countrymen. And it is in this manner that God hands the people of Israel's enemies into their hands. It's a strange tactic, but it works. Verse 25, the princes are captured, and notice where they're captured. In the rocks of Oreb, and then in the wine press. What do you remember about that from chapter 6? It was in the rocks, it was in the caves that the people of Israel had hid from the Midianites. And you remember when we were introduced to Gideon, he was hiding in a wine press. So the princes, the enemies, are found where Israel had, <laughs> had formerly been hiding. And I think this is just a way of God showing us that complete justice will be had. You will reap what you sow. And he gives them exact justice. 
So we'll stop there for this evening, and Lord willing, we'll pick up in chapter 8. It does not end well for Gideon, but here there are a number of lessons, and I'm going to focus in on verse 2, and and what I'm going to do is just highlight some simple lessons that we can draw from this text. Verse 2 tells us the reason that God uses these strange tactics, what we would call strange tactics. And he says he does this, that Israel may not claim glory for itself against me, saying my own hand has saved me. Firstly, let's consider that God desires here to be glorified. And we can read about this elsewhere in the Bible, in Isaiah especially. We can read about this. For instance, in chapter 48, he says that he will not give his glory to another. And he says this, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. God is giving us this this big idea. Everything he does, he does for his sake, for his namesake, for his glory. And of course, God deserves the glory. He alone can save, again from Isaiah. Anyone who is saved is saved because God has brought them to himself. Isaiah 43, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my my name, whom I have created for my glory. If you're created, you're created for God's glory. I have formed him, yes, I have made him. So why did God make you? Why did he make the people of Israel? For his glory. In Exodus, why does God raise up enemies? Why does he raise up Pharaoh? He tells us. He raises up Pharaoh that he may get glory over Pharaoh. There was no bad guy in all the earth who was as great as Pharaoh at the time. So God will compete, if you will, with Pharaoh. And of course, there's no competition. God in 10 plagues destroys Egypt and rescues his people. And he tells us that he does it for his glory. And then I think so helpfully, and I think this is a a beautiful truth here. God does this not selfishly, right? He, he's glorifying himself in, in Judges chapter 7 so that Israel may not claim glory for itself. This is for Israel's joy. It's for their good. And what a kindness of God to make it clear that he gets the glory. There is no greater good than God. Whom have I in heaven but you? Or better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. In your presence there is fullness of joy. There is no greater good than God. What gift could God give us that is better than himself? So the greatest thing, the most loving thing he could do for Israel, for do for us, is to give us himself, to give us a glimpse of his glory. For, so for their sake... He makes sure that only 300 men will get the victory so that he gets the glory and that they see it. 
And God gets the glory. And the reason this is good for us is, for one, it keeps us from idolatry. What a sorry state of affairs it would be if it was unclear to the people of Israel how they won the battles. But God makes it abundantly clear time and time again throughout the book of Judges that he alone is going to get the glory. He's using obscure people. He uses women. He uses odd weapons. And here, he uses very strange tactics. And this will keep the people of Israel reliant upon God. This is also good because Jesus thinks that God's glory is good for us. And I I trust Jesus' words. You remember in John 17, as he's praying for his people, it's, it's a comforting chapter and Jesus is pouring his heart out before God and we get a glimpse of what he desires for his people. And if you read John 17, you, you read what Jesus wants for his people. He wants his people to know him, of course. He wants his people to be with him where he is. He wants his people to be unified. And then he says this in verse 24, Father, I desire that they whom you gave me may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. So his, on, the, on the night before he's crucified, Jesus prays for his people and he says, Father, one thing I ask for them is that they may see my glory. This is what's best for us. Don't you think that Jesus would pray for what is best for us? And he does. John 17, I think, proves it. Another benefit of seeing God as glorious, is that the people of God know to go to God for power. In the previous chapter, Gideon acts when the Holy Spirit is given to him. The people of Israel win in chapter 7 when God acts. Gideon should have taken God at his word, and God told him, Earlier, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And Gideon doubts. But God continues to encourage him. And because he desires Gideon to see God as the source of all power, Gideon keeps coming back because he knows he doesn't have it in himself. So for you, believer, do you, do you lack courage? I think we all do at times. And if you lack strength to carry out those those tasks of God that are particularly risky, where do you go for power? This is the sort of Sunday school text that we cannot grow out of. We can't get too mature to begin ignoring Judges chapter 7. If we lack courage, we go like Gideon. I have criticized Gideon, and I think rightly, but at the end of the day, he is listed in Hebrews in that hall of faith. He has faith. He does come through. He does go fight for the glory of God. And so despite his weakness of faith, he does keep asking the Lord, will you give me another sign? Will you give this army into our hands? Do you do that? It's repeated and repeated. You can ask God for his Spirit. Remember in Acts 
4, the, the, the disciples had just seen Jesus do all of these wonderful things, and they see him ascend into heaven after he had resurrected from the dead. And then they grow, they grow fearful, and they pray. And when they pray, they pray for boldness. You would think at that point that they would have already had a fair share of boldness. But they pray nonetheless. And sometimes I think I am a bold witness. I do. But I can't tell you how often I need to pray for boldness, for clarity, for the desire to witness for Jesus Christ. Another benefit of seeing God as glorious is that we may employ the proper strategy now, I'm, I'm doing a bit of a riff here because strategy, at least in missionary circles, is overused. Strategy, by definition, is a plan of action. Look this up on the internet. A plan of action or policy designed to achieve a major aim. There's nothing wrong with strategy per se. It can be good, it can be useful, but it is often held up as a tool that only a few people in the church know how to yield. In our day and age, strategy is the talk. You go to church planters' conferences, and what will they talk about? They'll talk about strategy, perhaps, the latest strategy. Not not so much in reform circles, but much of the church are concerned with proper strategy. This is how the seeker-sensitive movement came about. They were putting coffee shops, like entire Starbucks, inside of churches, Because they are thinking that this is going to bring the people in. The people can have whatever they want, a frappuccino, and they can listen. As they have their frappuccino and the church turns into a movie theater. The church is about fun and they think that this is a good strategy because people will come in. Other churches will play secular music. There's a church, no joke, playing that played Highway to Hell. Happened in... South Carolina, they, they, why? It has something to do with strategy, and they'll justify it, and they'll go on and on about, well, this is a good tactic. This is how you meet people, where they are. It's provocative. It'll get people thinking. In the missions world, people so often... Uh, overthink contextualization. When we go out to a people group, if you go to, you name the country, wherever you go, missionaries will often gather, and I think many of them are good-hearted, but they'll get together and they'll talk about their strategy for reaching a people. And again, that's right and good. Gideon himself employs a sort of strategy, right? But it's obvious that it's not the strategy that won the day. It's the It's the grace of God that won the day. It was 300 men that won the day. Our strategy is the ordinary means of grace. It's the preached word. It's prayer. It's sacraments. But then it's also leaving room for for allowing God to use what we may call strange means or unlikely means. Consider the walls of Jericho. They fell down, and the people of God went in and overtook it. Was that their clever thinking? Was that that some strategy they came up with? No. 
God was seeing to it that all the people of Canaan knew that God was powerful, that God was able. In some Muslim contexts, Christian missionaries will go into mosques and say that they are worshiping God. And this is strategy in their minds. And they'll go in, and and we'll call this the insider movement, and they'll go in, and they will try to witness to Muslims from inside mosques. And they will pretend, that might be a strong word, but they will lead Muslims to believe that they are actually Muslims, or they won't necessarily say that outright, but they'll blend in with the community for a long time. They'll even go through some of the same rituals, and they think that employing this clever strategy will lead them to great success in evangelism. Instead, God has us using ordinary means or unlikely means. Jesus using a band of 12 men, not from the capital city, but from the outskirts. Many of them were fishermen. And most of Jesus' ministry took place in a rural area, not in the city. So many say the best, the best strategy for church planting is, is within the city. There may be some truth to that. We can't overthink it. We can't say that God will not use other means. So I think in a text like this, I would push back with some of this talk in evangelicalism about strategy. Another application, I think, is that when we see God as glorious, it gives us great comfort, even comfort in our even comfort in our suffering. The message of the cross is foolishness. People will call you foolish. But we can trust God, for it is the power of God. The message of the cross is the power of God. And to the world, that looks foolish. But to God, it is where he employs his power, where he exerts his power. And then... Lastly, when we see God as glorious, we get great joy. Everyone, unbelievers, believers, we want to be part of something that's, that's bigger than ourselves. We, we want to enjoy things that are a spectacle. We know that we are not the ultimate end. We know that something out there is greater than us. And, and to recognize this, All you need to do is to go someplace like the Grand Canyon. You stand next to the Grand Canyon, you look out there, and you say, something's bigger than me. And this is why people flock to it, unbelievers as well as believers, and they go and they marvel. And that's part of God's point in Judges 7. Let the people marvel. Let them tell their kids what God did through Gideon, that scared man. Let the people tell for generations that a band of 300 destroyed thousands by using pitchers and trumpets and torches. That's what this is about. It's about marveling. We read Psalm 136 at the beginning. And again and again and again, God is gracious to us. We went, I didn't... I didn't think I would like the Grand Canyon very much, but we went years ago. My in-laws were living out there, and we went, and we, we went down. We're getting close. 
this is great. We're with big family. This is, this is going to be fun. Okay. Looking forward to it. But I was completely surprised at how wonderful it was. The first thing that struck me was how quiet everyone was. There must have been 100 people on the first ledge that we, were, that we went and looked at. And 100 people typically make a lot of noise, especially in a touristy area. But as we approached the Grand Canyon from the parking lot, it got quieter and quieter and quieter. And then once you got there, it was silence. And people were just looking. And that's what glory does, isn't it? It quiets the soul. It comforts. And it gives you great joy. And the thing, actually, that broke the silence was a French woman. There were people from all over the world there. The French woman next to me just said, magnifique. And that's about the only French word that I know. And she's right. It was magnificent. And it was wonderful. And you didn't want to talk. Hey, you want to go get some coffee after this? No, no, no. Let's sit here and let's enjoy the glory that's before us. So when God does this again and again and again, you and I, we should talk about it. We should revel in it. We should marvel at it. That is God's point. This is especially so in Jesus Christ, his son who came and who died. The God-man entered into his creation. And if you have not yet believed the gospel, I welcome you to believe it. For there is no marvel greater than that. The God-man came, and he died for sinners. And you can have life by believing upon him. Let's pray. Father, we do pray you will grant salvation to all who hear this message. And we pray for the comfort of your people. May we not get tired of these Sunday school stories, but may we remember to marvel at them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.